trust. It's essential in successful relationships. A lack of trust among people can be hurtful or demeaning. But in security, trusting no one or nothing until it's verified is becoming a smart strategy for defensive posture. It's a concept known as zero trust. When I talk to customers today, almost every question is about zero trust. And I think that's because of the rapid acceleration in interest due to COVID-19 and companies needing to support their employees working from home. Um, so I would say it appears to me to be the single most influential trend in security right now. And uh, I expect it's gonna just accelerate. Hi, I'm Joan Goodchild. Welcome to Strengthen and Streamline Your Security. This podcast series explores the core components of a modern security strategy with insights and tips from leading security experts. We discuss how ongoing and ever-changing threats, a growing security stack, and a shift to remote work make it difficult for CISOs and their security teams to balance enterprise-grade security with end-user productivity. In this episode, we explore the steps organizations are taking toward zero trust, a security strategy that assumes a trust-nothing stance. We'll take a look at the current state of zero trust adoption and examine recommendations for making the most of a zero trust deployment. As any experienced security manager knows, keeping the bad guys out of sensitive systems and data is a non-stop process. The malicious techniques used by hackers are always evolving and becoming more sophisticated. Traditional perimeter-based strategies, which focus on simply keeping edges hardened and hoping that nothing gets in, have not held up over time. Zero-trust security models have emerged as a better alternative. John Pescatore, a security industry veteran and currently Director of Emerging Security Trends at the SANS Institute, explains Zero Trust's origins. Zero Trust security dates back to a report Forrester put out using the term back in 2010, but really it has roots that go all the way back to 2006 when first Microsoft came out with what Microsoft called network access protection and roughly the same time Cisco came out with Cisco network access control. And what they were basically both saying was whenever anything connects to the network, we're gonna check is somebody using it that we know they've authenticated it to the, to the directory and we know who they are and what's the security health status of the device? Is it patched, is it vulnerable, is it dangerous? Environments that use a zero-trust strategy embrace three principles. One, verify explicitly by continuously authenticating and authorizing access. Two, use least-privileged policies to limit user access with just-in-time and just-enough access. And three, assume breach, which minimizes a breach radius by segmenting access by network, user, devices, and app awareness. Zero trust is different from a perimeter-based defense because instead of only building a wall, security teams also focus on protecting what's inside that wall. What zero trust really does is focus on making the 
destinations harder to attack. So it, rather than say, how do we put more and more complex stuff between the attacker and the uh, PCs and servers and the resources, how do we build those resources to be more resilient, to be more resistant to attack? And that may be requiring strong authentication. That may be adhering to security standards and minimizing privileges and locking things down. Zero trust is a philosophy rather than just a tool. It requires multiple technologies to put together a zero trust approach. And interest in zero trust is really taking off, says Bob Bragdon, Worldwide Managing Director for CSO. In IDG's annual security priorities research, he's seen a significant uptick in zero trust deployment. Actually, we've seen the, the numbers jump fairly steadily over the last four years of doing the research, which is really great. I think um, I went back and took a look, and the last two years, we've seen the number of businesses with zero trust, either in a production or a refinement, double to one in every four organizations, which was really, really, you know, strong growth. Why the surge in interest? Beyond the inability of traditional tactics to fully protect, Bragdon notes several other factors that are prompting security leaders to take a look at zero trust. There's a bunch of things going on behind the scenes, right? The acceleration of digital transformation in 2020 because of the shifting workplace and shifting workforces really created the awareness that we need to have a better way of managing the risk, particularly when we start dealing with endpoints and the, the explosion of ransomware and the, all, the, all the different types of attacks we saw happening in 2020. That moved to the remote work and the risks that went with it just exploded for a lot of organizations. Specific kinds of attacks, like the plague of malware and ransomware, are also a driver. Again, here's John Pescatori. I think another uh, big driver for growth is the impact ransomware has had. Uh, you know, breaches were one thing, they're really bad, but they were happening so often and they were sort of, oh yeah, we got to buy, pay $100 for user to do this. But when ransomware attacks could bring down global companies for three weeks and cause them to admit $300 million impacts to the bottom line in a single event, I think that raised the, the need for stronger endpoint security and more focus on concepts like zero trust. And, th and that's driven uh, lots of the adoption. Those who have adopted zero trust have found it to be an effective way to minimize intrusion and contain breaches. Microsoft, a strong proponent of the zero trust model, is a zero trust shop itself. Alex Simons, Corporate Vice President of Program Management with Microsoft's Identity Division, explains the company's three-year journey to zero trust. Today at Microsoft, every employee has to have a managed device that has to be encrypted and protected, whether that's a Windows PC, an Android phone, or an iOS phone. Uh, they can't access a corporate resource without it. They have to have done a strong MFA. In fact, most Microsoft uh, employees now, in fact, are completely passwordless and haven't entered a password in a long, long time. And all of our applications and resources are protected using a least privilege approach so that any employee at any moment can only get to the resources that they need. This approach limits lateral movement of bad actors should a breach occur. It's much harder to do a sideways elevation of privilege and kind of traverse through a set of, of resources. Instead, the breach is kind of limited to that, just the set of things that that resource has access to, and it has to find a way into a, into a completely different angle to be able to expand. Uh, and zero trust, because it really limits everything down to just the thing it's supposed to be able to do at that moment, 
means that it's just much easier to keep your breach under control. The recent solar wind cyber attack provides an example. Nation-state attackers were able to hack into the systems of multiple U.S. government agencies and private companies. In its investigation into the breach, Microsoft says it found no evidence that hackers abused its internal systems or products to pivot and attack end-users and business customers. It also found that customers using a zero-trust model had better outcomes. The core of the SolarWinds issue was the software that got inside of people's uh, perimeters and then was able to disguise itself and take action like it was a trusted service. Uh, for people who had adopted a good zero trust model, there is no perimeter to get inside. At Microsoft, we were able to detect a lot of the actions that the SolarWinds uh, uh, software was trying to take because we just assumed that there is no perimeter and you have to always be able to monitor and track everything. Uh, so yeah, I think it made a really big difference for a lot of customers who had uh, taken a zero trust approach and it certainly did for us. One broader lesson from the solar winds attack, Pescatore says, is that organizations need to apply zero trust thinking to their entire software supply chain. Even when security is involved, we're typically in many products that are key to an organization, you know, for example, whether it's Windows or Linux or whether it's, uh, in this case, SolarWinds as the network system management system or some other product, we don't have the zero trust concept built in where we'd say every vendor must prove their product is secure before we start using their product. We definitely need more security testing built into the idea of when we select vendors before we let their products live on a production network. So if zero trust had been extended out to the supply chain, it could have helped uh, early on detect this uh, compromise of solar winds. But unfortunately, zero trust is generally not part of supply chain thinking. While more security leaders are looking to utilize a zero trust strategy, it can be difficult to know where to start. Simons and other experts recommend a successful zero trust deployment begins with strong identity and access management. Identity is really the core of your zero trust model, right? So you gotta be able to identify all of the actors. And by actors, I mean the, the humans, so your employees, your customers, your partners of the devices and of all of the software. So each of those needs to have an identity that you can track and evaluate in order to make real-time decisions. Comprehensive policies about who should be able to access resources should be backed by strong authentication to ensure that people and systems accessing information are who they claim to be. Moving beyond simple passwords is critical to a successful zero-trust model, says John Pescatore. I would say one of the most important gotchas always comes back to strong authentication. How can we be sure we really know who's using this device or controlling this device? Uh, and if it's all based on reusable passwords, we, we have an inherent uh, weak spot baked into zero trust. And strong authentication is key to getting away from that weak spot. Alex Simon says adding multi-factor authentication is the single most important thing organizations can do to decrease their risk because more than 80% of enterprise breaches start with a compromised user account that did not have multi-factor authentication. If you can just get even the weakest kind of MFA in place, you've decreased your risk by 99.99%. So that is the core piece of getting started on one of these zero trust journeys. Uh, get 
MFA turned on, especially for your highest risk accounts. Uh, and then if you can then move to a continuous authentication pattern where it's not just that they performed an MFA once, but that you are continually evaluating the risk of that user and their sessions and being able to terminate those sessions in real time, then you've put yourself into a really strong position. As Simon's note, zero trust is a journey, not a one-time implementation. But Bob Bragdon says it's well worth the effort. There's this, I think, realization that there are benefits from just starting the journey because zero trust is not a layup. I mean, it's not an easy thing to, to put in. It takes a little work, it takes a little time. It's not a technology, it's a collection of technologies. But there's also this understanding coming around that even starting down that road to zero trust and taking the first few steps delivers value in reducing risk for your organization. So I think that's kind of why we're seeing this slow, steady growth. If you get your identity management role, you get your authentication, you start doing data classification, there are benefits that flow in risk mitigation from all of those technologies. Even if you never get all the way to zero trust, these things actually help create a, a more secure environment. Creating a secure digital environment for employees and customers is a board level concern these days. Both Bragdon and Simons offer a few tips for selling zero trust to the C-suite and company directors. Set the expectations with senior management. Um, they, in my opinion, and, and my observation has been when you start talking about zero trust and you explain what it is, they generally understand the approach. They may not understand all the technology behind it, but they they quickly will get behind that. And zero trust is has been gaining a lot more traction in the marketplace uh, as a viable solution that businesses want to try to adopt. And so, and that filters right up into, into senior management ranks on the board. Most CISOs tend to approach zero trust purely as a security uh, uh, and security mitigation and risk issue. But I think there's a much broader story to be told. I think given all of our experience during COVID, especially with so many uh, companies, employees working from home and showing that they can be highly productive in those mobile settings, I think we have really kind of crossed the Rubicon to a place where now a whole generation of employees are gonna expect that they will just be able to work remotely. And it's really more about getting the job done rather than FaceTime at the office. Uh, and I think because of that, for most companies, zero trust is not just a security model, it is also an HR issue and a hiring issue, which is if you can't support a zero trust model, which lets people be productive wherever they want to in the world, it's gonna be increasingly challenging to attract the best talent to the company and to really get the key people you need to be able to move your business ahead. Thank you for joining us. In upcoming episodes of Strengthen and Streamline Your Security, We'll be talking more about modern threat protection and response with additional experts and special guests. For Microsoft and IDG, I'm Joan Goodchild. This podcast has been produced by IDG Communications Incorporated in association with Microsoft.